Hello, and welcome to Writing the Coast. I'm your host, Megan Cole, and Writing the Coast is the official podcast of the BC and Yukon Book Prizes. This is your destination for conversations with the finalists of the BC and Yukon Book Prizes, as well as interviews with book lovers from across the province and territory. My guest for this episode is an author and journalist, but I'll let her introduce herself. My name's Eva Holland. I live in Whitehorse, Yukon. I'm a freelance writer and the author of Nerve, A Personal Journey Through a Science of Fear, which is my first book. I asked Eva, if you could be a character from any novel, who would you be? And like many of my guests, she had to think a little bit about her answer, but here's what she said. So many bad things happen to characters in novels. I'm trying to think of the happiest novel I can think of. (laughs) I think I would like to be Pippin in Lord of the Rings. He seems like he has the best time out of everyone. (laughs) He, uh, I don't know, he's always kind of the comic relief, the lighthearted, the lighthearted interlude, but he's still, you know, there for his friends and, and does the right thing when he's called to. Eva Holland is the author of Nerve, A Personal Journey Through the Science of Fear, which is a finalist for the 2021 Hubert Evans Nonfiction Prize. Eva starts our episode with a reading from her book. So this is a section from the prologue of my book. I've just gone on an ice climbing trip with friends in northern British Columbia. We've been ice climbing all day on a frozen waterfall at the top of a frozen creek that we hiked up in the morning. And we've just finished rappelling down and we're supposed to be heading out, hiking back to the cars. When everyone had arrived at the bottom of the last rappel, we bunched together to head down the walkable, unroped portion of the route along the frozen creek. As the group began to head down in twos and threes, I stood on the edge of one of the low ice bulges I'd stepped up without difficulty that morning. There was maybe a foot, a foot and a half between the flat surface I stood on and the next flat section of ice. All I had to do was reach out with my boot and step down. I stared at my feet, but I couldn't make them move. I kept picturing myself stepping down and my crampons failing to catch in the ice, my foot flying forward like I'd stepped on a banana peel in a cartoon. From there, I watched my body collapse, slide down the first ice bump and then the next, picking up speed, sliding and sliding down every frozen rise all the way to the bottom. I couldn't do it, said a voice in my head. I would fall. I would die. Some irrational force had taken over my body. I couldn't breathe properly, couldn't move my limbs. A tiny part of me knew I just needed to take one step down, that everything would be fine if I could only move my feet. But that voice of reason had been shoved into a corner at the back of my brain. Another voice was in control now. Ryan noticed my distress and circled back to reassure me. I heard myself tell him that I couldn't come down the mountain, unfortunately. The group would just have to leave me there, I said. I couldn't walk down, so they would all have to go on. I would stay right where I was. My flat tone said my plan was reasonable, but staying where I was as the temperature plunged and darkness came on and I stood shivering in my wet Gore-Tex would be suicide. Still, my feet refused to move. I watched Ryan confer with the others and send Carrie and the rest of the group on ahead so they could make it to the cars before dark. Ryan, his friend Joel, and a third guy I barely knew, Nick, stayed behind. Joel stood on one side of me and grabbed my left hand. Nick took hold of my right. Ryan stepped down to the next ledge and turned to face me, pointing with his ice axe at the spot where I needed to put my foot. Slowly, taking deep breaths and clutching Joel's and Nick's hands hard, 
I forced my right foot down. My crampons caught. I did not slide to my death. Then we repeated the process with my left foot. The light dimmed and the night got cold. We inched down the mountain, Ryan pointing out every step, promising me that it was safe, right foot, left foot. I think I cried quietly some of the time from fear and frustration at the extent to which my body and mind had betrayed me. I was still halfway convinced that if I took one wrong step, it would be the step that killed me. It felt like the descent took hours. Eventually, we pulled out our headlamps and carried on downhill in the dark. Once we made it off the ice and onto the snowy trail for the last part of the hike down, I was finally able to let go of Joel's and Nick's hands. We tramped to the highway mostly in silence, and my fear receded enough for me to wonder how angry they were. Did Ryan wish he'd never invited me on this trip? Surely he must. By the time we were in the car, the four of us piled into the single remaining vehicle. My lingering fear had been eclipsed by the most powerful feeling of humiliation I have ever experienced. I sat in the back seat, trying to shrink into nothing, unable even to enjoy Ryan's traditional post-climb bag of dill pickle potato chips. I was utterly mortified. Back at the hotel, I did the best I could. I forced myself to socialize with the group over cards and drinks instead of hiding myself away. I offered beers to the guys who peeled me off the mountain. At some point, I asked Ryan what he would have done if I hadn't voluntarily taken that first downward step. You wouldn't have liked it, he said. I had a vision of Ryan and Joel hog-tying me and dragging me down the frozen creek, bump by bump, in a slow-motion version of my imagined death by sliding. He was right. I wouldn't have liked it. The next day, when the rest of the group went climbing again, I stayed at the hotel. I went for a long run along the highway. I read a book. I tried to relax and enjoy my weekend, tried to appreciate the blue sky and the white mountains all around the lodge. But I kept thinking back to my behavior the day before. It was unacceptable, I decided. I'd tried half-heartedly to work on my fear of heights over the years, but the matter had never seemed urgent. I had never before put my own life and the safety of others in danger because of it. I could hardly believe the lunatic on the mountain had been me, declaring that I would die from exposure rather than walk down a frozen creek. What was the matter with me? I tried not to let myself dwell on it, but my collapse on the route was a setback when I had only just begun to put myself together again. For much of my life, I had feared my mom's death. Her own mother had died when she was a child, and growing up, I had become intimately aware of the devastation the loss had left in its wake. I had dreaded living through the same loss, and when my turn did come, I had fallen apart. In the months after, I had retreated completely from my life, from friends, from exercise, from the things I normally did to challenge and amuse myself. For too long, I felt like I had forgotten how to smile or laugh, like the muscles in my face had stiffened up and no longer knew how to perform those simple acts. It had only been a few weeks since I started to re-engage socially. I had started running, started feeding myself properly again, stopped living on my couch in a blur of binge-watched TV shows. I didn't want my setback on the mountain to derail my slow, hard-earned return to normal life. I didn't want my terror to control me that way ever again. I decided, sitting alone in that hotel by the side of a lonely highway, that I would figure out what had happened in my brain on the mountain that day, and then I would figure out how to fix it. So you read from the prologue where you kind of mention a few kind of moments of, I don't know if they would be moments, but kind of significant fear situations in your life. And I, I wondered how it went from those things to writing a book about that, which also was kind of your own um, exposure therapy and other things to, uh, to help you deal with that fear. Yeah, so this book started out as just sort of a personal self-improvement project before I decided to write about it. The moment that I describe in the prologue is when I really 
said, okay, I need to figure out what is happening with my fear of heights. I'd been at that point sort of ignoring it or working around it or trying to push through it for several years in, in sort of doing sports and adventure in the mountains in the Yukon in Alaska. And it didn't seem tenable anymore. So that was the moment when I decided specifically I was going to figure, my, figure out my fear of heights. But there were two other tracks kind of running alongside that. Um, one of which had been my fear of my mom's death, which had come true about six months before the incident I just read from. And the other was my sort of ongoing trauma around driving in winter weather. I had um, a series of car accidents, um, mostly in sort of blizzardy conditions, black ice and hailstorms and things like that. And I was compromised in terms of my ability to keep driving in winter conditions, which is a problem when you live in the Yukon. So it started out that I just thought, okay, I'm going to study, you know, acrophobia and figure out how to cure my fear of heights. And then about two months after the incident in the prologue, I had the last of my car accidents, knock on wood, hopefully the last, the last so far. And I had actually been um, thinking about turning stuff, something about my fear of heights into a writing project, maybe a book project earlier that day. I'd been driving on the highway. I had talked to my agent earlier in the day about book ideas and book proposals, sort of the status of, of, a, of a book idea I'd been working on earlier. And I was thinking, you know, maybe I should turn this fear stuff into a book. It seems like a pretty kind of powerful, hopefully fairly universally appealing subject uh, that affects a lot of us in different ways. And I was, you know, almost literally thinking about that as I drove into a hailstorm in Northern BC and, and rolled my car. And so that night in the hospital in Fort Nelson is when I decided, okay, this isn't just going to be a personal project. This is going to be, now I, this is a sign from the universe that I have to do the book about fear. And, uh, and it was, it was sort of baked in from the beginning that part of the book process would be about trying to sort out uh, my own issues with, with fear and trauma. Were you ever um, worried or afraid of making that transition from it being a more personal project of self-improvement to something that you'd then be sharing more publicly with readers? I didn't worry too much about it at the time. I have a pretty long history of, of publishing um, first-person writing, you know, personal essays and, and sort of immersion reporting, um, like I use in the book, sort of jumping into situations uh, and making myself the central character in them. Uh, so I felt comfortable with that aspect of it. I didn't know what to expect in terms of how intense it would get or how effective any of the therapies I might try would be. You know, I sort of thought of it as a bit of a gimmick, a way to make the material, the science accessible to readers, you know, to have myself being sort of the crash test dummy. But it ended up being, I think, in some ways more intimate than I expected at the start. Yeah. And maybe you can talk a little bit more about that because you've mentioned before how the book is a lot, it's a lot of memoir and there's also obviously the research in there, but how did that personal part of it feel for you in those intimate moments? Because you write, you write about your mother's death and how that impacted you and, and all those other moments as well. And those are, those can be hard moments to share with, you know, a group of friends, let alone, you know, someone you don't know. That was the, definitely the trickiest part of the book to figure out editorially, I think. It, it's the hardest part to have distance from. I knew I needed to write my way through my feelings about my mom's death at some point. And I'd been working kind of on and off on a sort of sprawling, incomplete personal essay since she died. So that was something that I'd been doing intermittently for three or four years before I worked seriously on the book. And 
but I didn't know how much of that would belong in the book. Ultimately, it didn't seem enough to just say, you know, my relationship with fear is related to my mom's death and her mom's death. I, I felt like I needed to explain why her mother's death affected me as much as it did and, and why it led me to fear my mom's death and how it sort of shaped my response. But then for that to make sense, you have to have at least some sense of the depth of our relationship. And it was really tricky to be objective about what the reader needed to know and what was sort of me working through stuff. And my editors were really helpful there. Although it was, you know, it's always hard to hear, you know, this isn't relevant or, or this, you know, we can, we can lose this section when you're, when it's some of the most personal stuff you've ever written. Um, but I, I had to just kind of put myself in their hands because um, it's all important to me. <laughs> um, and, and so I had to sort of trust their judgment about how much the reader needed to know about, about me and my mom and, and her death to sort of inform the rest of the story about, about fear and, and my exploration of the science of fear. Yeah. You mentioned earlier that um, you've always kind of explored like the immersion reporting side of things and, and some journalists are totally uh, opposed to that and don't think it's an, a way to be objective in how they're reporting. But how did you get into that? And maybe you can talk a little bit about how you um, integrated those aspects into the book as well. So I don't have a journalism background as far as my education. I came out of the creative writing side of things rather than the journalism side. You know, some people are reporters first and kind of writers second, and, and some people are writers first and reporters second, and I'm definitely the latter. I went to a creative creative arts high school in Ottawa, Canterbury High School. Um, it's a public school, but you have to audition, and then you sort of major in your art for four years, and I did the creative writing program there, and so I was, you know, I was growing up in that world of literary journals and, and poetry and, and short fiction and uh, did not go to journalism school. I studied history and continued to write, you know, personal essays and that sort of thing on the side. I, sh I shifted increasingly to nonfiction in my twenties. And I didn't call myself a journalist for a long time. When I started freelancing, I mostly wrote travel pieces, a lot of which were first person, you know, personal essays about travel. And so that was just kind of a natural mode for me. Um, and as I started to sort of acquire some reporting skills and do more of what would be considered traditional journalism, it was always easy and safe for me to revert back to the first person. I, I think in particularly when you're talking about narrative nonfiction, I think there's something uh, transparent about framing who you are and where you're coming from in the story. I, I really admire some of the writing I've read that's, you know, so meticulously researched that the writer can write as though they're inside another person's head, you know, that, that novelistic technique, but in nonfiction, that they've, they've done their interviews so thoroughly that they actually write, you know, as sort of an omniscient narrator, including the thoughts in other people's heads. I, I find that frightening to do, and it feels safer and more honest in a way for me to, to revert to the first person. So that's kind of my, I, I try to write at least one third person, you know, narrative feature a year to make sure that I can do it. And that I don't become sort of a one trick pony. I try to write outside of my own voice, you know, periodically as a working writer, but, but it's safe for me to revert to first person. And so I think it was sort of almost guaranteed that my first book would be in the first person. <laughs> I was trying to, um, to pick a project that would be that would challenge me and, and push me in different ways, but that would still be kind of within my wheelhouse enough that I knew I could could execute it, you know, and and 
send in a manuscript on time that I was reasonably happy with. Um, I was, I was, it felt like a big leap to go from magazines to books. And so the, the immersion parts of this book, did you know what those were going to be going into it? Or did that kind of, as you were researching and working through the book, did you stumble upon them? A couple of them were very explicitly planned in my book proposal. Two of them were actually already done as far as the immersion part when I sold the book. I had already done um, the skydive in chapter four and the sort of rock climbing as exposure therapy in chapter five. Those were both my sample chapters uh, for the proposal. So those were done before the book really got underway. And then I had always known I planned to do some sort of therapy for my car accident trauma. I didn't know what that would look like exactly, but I knew that would be an immersion chapter where I went to therapy and wrote about it. I just didn't know. I was like, I don't know if, if it will be hypnosis or um, CBT or what, you know, what mode of therapy would make sense. And ultimately it was, it was friends who work in the field who directed me to EMDR, the therapy that I ended up doing and writing about. The only piece of immersion that was a real surprise is probably the one I get asked about the most. Chapter seven was intended to be a straight journalistic science chapter about this researcher in Amsterdam um, who's running this single dose drug treatment for phobias. Uh, I did not expect to be able to undergo that treatment myself. I thought <clears throat> that she would have pretty specific clinical trials underway that I wouldn't likely fit into, you know, in terms of the criteria. And I hoped I would just be able to observe her. But it just so happened she had just opened up her clinic for open appointments when I contacted her for an interview. And she sort of said, you know, do you, you want to come do it? And I was like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I do. So I ended up flying to Amsterdam two weeks before my book deadline to do this experimental drug treatment for phobias. Yeah. And what was, I mean, you said you get asked about it a lot. Do you think, what do you think it is about that chapter that interests people so much? I think it's the sort of science fiction-y nature of the treatment. It seems too good to be true. I was skeptical. People are naturally skeptical. Um, it's sort of this dramatic, you know, that's not... It's not what we expect from medical science these days is sort of dramatic leaps and, and miracle cures. It's, you know, science is so often about incremental progress and, and knowledge piling on top of knowledge to create these very gradual changes in the way we approach the world. And, you know, her, her treatment is built on a, a, a large base of sort of gradually accumulated understanding of, of memory science and, um, so it's sort of hard one in that respect, but the results are startling. And I think that's partly what, what grabs people's attention. Yeah. Something I was thinking about, um, about your book and, and often like authors go into a book project and they come out the other end changed and maybe they don't intend on that being the case, but it kind of always seems to happen probably because so many books take so long to write that you can't help but be a different person at the end but that was really like the goal for you going into the book were you ever worried that maybe you wouldn't be able to conquer your fears and what would happen if that didn't go as planned I wasn't just worried about it I was sort of firmly expecting that I I really and I was worried that it would come out a bit flat but I was anticipating writing an epilogue for this book that was sort of wishy-washy like well I didn't cure my fears but I sure learned a lot along the way uh you know like like a children's tv special or something um 
And I didn't, I didn't want that outcome, but I was sort of braced for that outcome throughout and was pleasantly surprised by actually how much change I was able to make in my life and my relationship to my fears over the course of working on the book. Something I was curious about with the research was, um, obviously the book is Adventures in the Science of Fear, um, but I mean, there's a there's other aspects, I guess, that are scientific that are more related to like the cultural and societal aspects that can create fear as well. Did you have to kind of be intentional about what um, angles and bits you were going to follow for the book? Yeah, my original proposal actually included a chapter sort of about mob mentality and the way um, fear spreads in a crowd, you know, we have this language of fear spreading kind of like a virus, um, you know, fear being contagious, just sort of um, funny to look back on now in our post March 2020 world. And it just, I didn't have a lot of research to go with it. And it just didn't seem to be fitting with the rest. And so we ended up cutting it. And there's just sort of passing references to the idea of fear as kind of contagion and I think there's a lot to be said about about that stuff, about sort of mob mentality and, and the way fear can turn a crowd, a crowd of frightened people into a crowd of angry, dangerous people. And and I gesture at that a couple of times in the book, the way fear can sort of weaponize people. But it just ended up seeming like a little outside of the bounds of what I was trying to do, which was fairly narrow. Ultimately, I did have to sort of there were so many rabbit holes I wanted to go down, especially in the science. You know, I could have written a whole book about nightmares. And instead I wrote, I think, you know, six or eight paragraphs about nightmares. So much interesting stuff about the intersection of, you know, um, fear and memory and sleep science. And there's so much we still don't know as well. Um, so I did have to kind of try to keep myself on task and, and focus on, you know, telling this specific story rather than trying to be more comprehensive. The, the parts about nightmares were fascinating to me because I I was a kid who was like plagued with nightmares as a kid and I still get them like wake up and can't breathe kind of nightmares. And I just found that so interesting, those parts. I would definitely read a full book on nightmares, which sounds weird, but I would. <laughs> I would too. I, I think that stuff is so interesting. I, I ended up, the way I sort of got through it was by telling myself, oh, you can write a magazine story about this later. Oh, you can write a magazine story about this later. <laughs> so I guess my last question for you is how, how is your relationship with fear now having gone through the book? Is it still something you have to kind of work on or does it feel like you have a hold of on it now? It's been very up and down. I came out of the book process feeling really good about my relationship with fear, feeling very balanced, very healthy, like I had good coping mechanisms and, and good sort of understanding of, of how to kind of self-regulate a bit more than I used to. And the pandemic has certainly undermined some of that confidence in my own kind of stability. Um, but at the same time, it's also been a, you know, a test of some of the coping mechanisms that I learned and and I have found that I'm able to sort of be, be resilient and, and tell myself, okay, you know how to navigate this. You know what's happening to your body right now. I, it's funny. I just wrote a new afterword for the American paperback that's coming out in the fall. And I, I had to look back on some of the stuff I wrote in the book. And, and, you know, I think I wrote at one point, like, I'm not an anxious person. And that's just, that's just no longer true. I have become an anxious person in the last year and a half. I'm so much more anxious than I used to be. Um, I just see 
threats and and worries and consequences around me so much more than I used to. So that's that's interesting and, and kind of a bummer. But but what I've retained from my research in the book, I think, is this sense that my relationship to fear and anxiety and trauma is malleable. It's changeable if I put the work in. And so this newfound anxiety doesn't feel permanent to me. It doesn't feel like it's gonna, you know, plague me forever necessarily. And that's that's um a really good thing to be able to hold on to to say this isn't permanent. I can I can change this if I need to. Thanks so much to Eva for being on Writing the Coast. And thanks to you, our listeners, for listening and subscribing to Writing the Coast. If you would like to learn more about the BC and Yukon Book Prizes, be sure to visit our website, bcyukonbookprizes.com. On our website, you'll find all the information about our shortlisted authors, as well as details about upcoming events, like our storied series, and our gala and viewing party. Next time on Writing the Coast, you'll hear my conversation with Bonnie Sherkline, author of Beep Beep Bubby, which is a finalist for the 2021 Christy Harris Illustrated Children's Literature Prize. Thanks for listening to Writing the Coast.